Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day. We are in a new series studying the book of James. I hope you'll journey along with us over the next several weeks. But I want to begin today with a question. When is the last time that you had a massive shift in the way you think about God, in the way you pictured God, or the way you thought about the world? When was the last time you had a big idea swing from one extreme to the other? Let me ask you another question more about life. When is the last time you had a specific shift in lifestyle? Maybe a new habit was formed, or maybe you died to an old habit. When have you experienced an altering of life in a new way? I want you to put a pin in those questions because we're going to come back to them at the end of the sermon. And as we look at the book of James, I first want to start off, we have to look at who is James in the first place. And we have to see that James fundamentally went through a massive shift in how he viewed the world and how he viewed Jesus. And so I want to look at today how people change. What are the ingredients that exist that lead us to meaningful change. How we think about the world and also how we live. And this process involves three stages, if you will. It involves construction, uh, deconstruction, and reconstruction. I want you to also put a pin in these kind of terms. Let me just describe them real quick. And these aren't linear things that we go through. They're more dynamic and we bounce between construction and deconstruction and reconstruction. But first, construction. Construction is a very important stage of life. It's what it means to be human. We're all born into families and born into a sense of how the world works and how God is at work. And we're born into understanding how we function in that world. We're all given key stories and symbols of how we are to live. Uh, for me, uh, I remember growing up in a Lutheran-like faith inherited from my, my Grammy. And I was baptized as an infant. And some of the construction that was passed down from that lineage of this Lutheran faith was that the word of God was very important, right? And the second thing was my Grammy always saw anything evil, the devil was behind it, right? Oh man, it's, it's storming outside. It must be the devil, right? And so these are some of the things that were constructed in our upbringing's worldview. But then uh, we uh, went and transferred to a local Baptist church because my babysitter went there and it was way closer than any other church. And so this church began to shape my mom. Uh, my dad didn't come to church with us, but we began to, I think my mom's faith was deconstructed a little bit. The Lutheran faith was deconstructed to see a new way to, to function. And during the time of deconstruction, it's, uh, it can be filled with fear and anxiety and doubt, but it can also be filled with excitement and energy and an electricity of, of cusping to learn something new or studying something new. And so I saw some of this deconstruction uh, for my mom in this new context. And it's a time of curiosity. It's a time where we are uh, not always content with party line answers that are given. We, we wanna press in and push deeper. And I think a lot of times when we're in deconstruction phase, uh, there's this time to double down and pretend everything's fine, right? Uh, it's a time sometimes we're tempted to just be distracted and pretend that it's not there. But the deconstruction phase of life in the scripture is very important. And then lastly is the reconstruction phase. Like what defines you? What will you stand for? Who are you? What is your identity in the end? And what good will you do in this world? 
And so uh, I want you to keep these three phases in mind as we jump into learning about who James is, all right? So James, first of all, the book is, James is gonna call us to change forcefully. He's gonna give more imperatives or commands per square inch of every verse than any other book in the Bible. He's gonna challenge the way you live. He's gonna challenge the way you work. He's gonna challenge the way you see trials. He's gonna challenge the way you see people richer than you. And he's gonna challenge the way you see people poorer than you. He's going to challenge uh, the way you view money and the way you view wisdom and what you do with your words. James is going to challenge us to change. And when he does this, he's not, he's coming after us directly. He's gonna call us brothers or family in one sentence. In the next sentence, he's gonna call us idolaters. And so James is going to come with us with a punch and, and, and he's gonna pack in a lot of things. And yet, he's not about changing external activities. God is not in the business of tying caterpillars to kites, asking them to fly, leaving you unchanged, but manipulating the externals. God is not in this kind of metamorphosis. He's into actually true metamorphosis of transforming caterpillars into butterflies to see us go through the risk and hope of change. And that process is what happened to James. Now, we don't know a lot about James, but we can reconstruct a little bit more about who he is and what his life was like from some scriptures. So we got to dive in to know who James is before we understand what this book is about. James, the first time we see him mentioned is in Matthew 13, 55. In Matthew 13, 55, it says that he, Jesus, went away from uh, them and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And they were astonished and said, who is this man who teaches with wisdom and mighty words? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his, the mother uh, of, isn't his mother Mary? And, and isn't his brother James and, and Judas? And so the, first of all, they're like, didn't this guy's dad help us build shelves? Like, isn't this guy's mother Mary? And the first one they mention of his siblings is James. And for some of you, that's like the shock of the day. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know Jesus had brothers. Major trivia question, I'm gonna be a hit at parties. Well, not just brothers, Jesus had sisters. Mind blown, like, right? It's something we don't often think about, that James had brothers and sisters. But what was it like to be Jesus's little brother? Well, Mark 3 jumps in to tell us more that as Jesus began his ministry, he was packing out the house with his teachings. People were coming all over the place. Jesus began to heal people, and he was attracting very large crowds. And Jesus would show up, and people would be hanging out of the windows, listening in as Jesus was teaching. And from the back of the crowd, someone yells, hey, I think Jesus's family is here. And then from the back of the crowd, they, they begin to part the seas of the crowd and they begin to look to the family to see what they're going to say. And what are they going to say? They're going to say, we've come down to worship our brother as the Messiah. No, they, they, they don't. Do they say that? They don't. They say this in Mark 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. But when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, and they said, he's out of his mind. Did they come to worship Jesus? No, they came to admit Jesus. They're like, not just thinking that he's out of his mind, they're saying he is out of his mind. They're like, come on, Jesus. Sorry, guys, when his blood sugar gets a little low, he thinks that he's the Messiah, like gets a little crazy. Like they literally were saying that he has lost it. 
So James is not on board with what Jesus is doing. Jesus doesn't fit his constructed Jewish worldview, that God is one, and that one day a Messiah will come, but this brother of mine is not him. His constructed worldview left Jesus in the, another category, another box. He was not one that he was willing to reconcile. But later in Jesus' ministry, we keep going, we hear James again, John chapter 7. It says, when Jesus, when the, uh, when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Um, and so it, it, he's saying, hey, go to the big show. Go to Judea. Go to the bigger city. If you really are the Messiah and you think you are, go make yourself known to bigger places of influence. They weren't... Um, giving him good PR advice. They were thrusting him out into the city because they, this is sarcasm. They're, they're, they, they says later that, it says that they said this because even his own brothers did not believe in him. Their concern turned to mockery. They were mocking Jesus. And we won't see James again until Galatians chapter two. And the apostle Paul will then call him a pillar of the church. We see in Acts 12, Peter gets out of prison miraculously. And the first thing he says is someone go tell James because James is leading the movement of the church, of the Christians, the little Christian, Christian ones in Jerusalem. Acts 15, when we learn that the church was trying to articulate the gospel of grace, it was James that articulated this and leads the room in articulating what is grace. And then in our passage today, he says, I am James, a servant of God. He gives, him this, he gives himself this title of servant, not Jesus' little brother. And that word servant, it's the word doulos. It often is also translated slave. And uh, that is a very uh, complicated term. I love what Martha Elmore Keish says in her commentary on James. She says, on one hand, a servant, or here, a word used for slave, is impossible to hear without recalling the history of chattel slavery. The horrors of the plantation system that thrived in America because of the traffic in black bodies and the lasting political and social and economic damage that this history has caused for African-American communities. We should pause at such a metaphor as it is not necessary to understand God. So it's important to, to, to understand that then though, uh, even though slavery was a thing, it was that term was used as a term of honor. It was used to describe David, it was a term used to describe Moses. It was a term used to describe Jesus. And it, was a, it meant that you were an instrument or a mouthpiece of God, a trusted helper or a worshipful, devoted person to the Most High. To serve God, to be a slave to God, was to recognize that all other powers that could enslave me have no hold on me. That the only power in this world that I'm being influenced by is voluntarily submitting myself to God and His leadership voluntarily taking on his nature and laying down my, my life willingly in sacrificial solidarity for the life of the kingdom. That's what James meant by servant. And it wasn't this notion that God ruled me or reigned over me, but that I'm voluntarily serving him. So James here has been transformed. And then not only transformed to servant, but also there's an important conjunction and, not just a servant of God, but and the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, oh, and by the way, I'm a brother of Jesus. Uh, you know, he doesn't say that. He says that Jesus was also his Lord. 
That term Lord is very important. James could have said, oh yeah, by the way, I'm Jesus' little bro. No, he says he's my Lord. He's the one I worship. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, that there's no empire that has a hold on my life. Once a year, the citizens of Rome would be asked to light incense to the divinized Caesar and to worship Caesar of Rome as Lord. And James says, no, 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 no. This one that you used to mock and that I used to mock and said, Jesus is Lord, look at him dying on the cross. I'm now saying with full conviction, he is Lord. And so James went from skeptic to servant. He went from mockery to martyr. Later on, we would find in Josephus says that he was thrust into the top of a temple and pushed down and killed for his faith. He went from, I think he's a joke, to Jesus is Lord. Now here's the question, how did that happen? How did you go from skeptic to servant? Like, that's crazy. Like, think about your friends and your family, your uncle. Think about your craziest uncle for a moment and think, my craziest uncle became a pastor, right? Like, how does that happen? How does this crazy transformation happen, this change? What would have to happen for change to happen like that in James's life? Well, we see in 1 Corinthians 15 what happened. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul is writing about the resurrection. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James. Now, I love the way he just says that. Oh, yeah, and by the way, then he appeared to his little brother. He set up this personal interview with his brother, and man, I wish I was there for that moment, don't you? Don't you want to know what that was like? Like, I can imagine Jesus be like, hey, bro, once dead, not dead. Here I am, right? Like, like, can you imagine Jesus talking to his brother and be like, I tried to tell you, man. Like, don't you ever wonder why I didn't look like dad? Like, you know, all the, you know, just diving in, having this moment with an intimate moment with his brother, explaining to him that he truly was resurrected. What was that like for James? Now, I think we don't see a lot of the deconstruction that had to happen for James. But I know from, it's true of me, it's true of Thomas, and it's true of many of us. It's probably the same true of James, who was very devoted to his Jewish faith, so much so that they think, scholars say that this community that he pastored, there wasn't a defined Christian group yet. It was very Jewish-Christian uh, combined. It was one of the first faith communities. But I believe that the razor edge of doubt run deep through James. And I'll tell you that this moment of was ne James was never the same since this moment. And what I believe had the power to change James was the appearing, the appearing of Jesus. And so I want to talk about Jesus appearing from above, that his, his appearing must happen from above. And second, he must appear and we must work with that appearance from within so that we can then offer that appearance for the good of the world. First, James sees Jesus appeared from above. Jesus, James was confronted with the reality that Jesus appeared from the dead in a supernatural way. This was a literal resurrection. It was not figurative. 
It was a resurrection from above in which the Holy Spirit was involved with and the Father was, was totally intimately entrusted with. It was a resurrection that shattered James' Jewish worldview, and it does ours today. And it has so many people for thousands of years. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, proclaimed atheist, who studied all the philosophies and found them wanting. And C.S. Lewis wrote a biography, and he says that he begrudgingly acknowledged Jesus, that he was the most reluctant convert of all of London. And in his first book about his life in Pilgrim's Regress is a bizarre allegory uh, of this character who was looking for hope and all these philosophies, and they found none. And it's about C.S. Lewis himself. And C.S. Lewis portrays himself in this allegory as the main character forced down a cliff in the rain towards baptism with the truth of a, as a sword pointed towards him. And in the top, C.S. makes a commentary and says that John, the character, realizes he is in intimate danger of becoming a Christian. C.S. Lewis, Lewis realized, the more I investigate, the more I find Jesus is who he said he is, even though I don't want him to be. And later, Lewis would write a more normal biography called Surprised by Joy. That Lewis was surprised at this appearing that came out of nowhere into his constructed worldview. Now, I want to encourage us to read the book of James, read the teachings of Jesus' little brother. And, and, and it really is just a ripped off sermon from the <laughs> Sermon on the Mount. But go on a journey to practice the way of Jesus, to see what that practice does to your life. I want, you know, a lot of us want a spirituality on our own terms. But Jesus doesn't let us have a spirituality on our own terms. I'm reminded of a, a song um, forgive me, Three Doors Down. I'm not the biggest fan, but I'm just reminded of these lyrics and you'll see why I'm not the biggest fan. But the lyrics say, I'm here without you, baby, but you're still with me in my dreams. And tonight, girl, it's only you and me. And I remember hearing that song and going, ew. <laughs> you just said she's not there. It's not you and her there tonight. It's just you. And you can call it something else, but in the end, it's just you by yourself with your thoughts. And so similarly, we can't construct a Jesus on our own terms. Because in the end, that's just a caterpillar tied to a kite. You can't change something that you construct on your own. You can't have a relationship with an image that you construct in your own head about Jesus. We must encounter is appearing from above. Second, we must then take that appearing and work on it from within. James wasn't looking for a spiritual experience. He was living in his constructed reality. James had to deal with this and he couldn't ignore it. So he either had to, he could have ignored it, but he didn't, or he could have deconstructed his faith and deal with this new source of information, which he did, which caused for a disorientation. And many of us, I think, are in this moment with the craziness of our world right now, and to be honest, I'm not very satisfied with the way our world is functioning right now. And there's a lot of disappointment. And great disappointment often leads to great pain and leads to, to a deconstruction process. Either great pain or sometimes great love for someone else calls our narratives into question. And for James, this great love for Jesus, who had proven to be faithful, called his constructed worldview into question. And the Psalms often is a, is a, a lot of Psalms are about deconstruction. Hey, I thought the world, I thought God would just bless the righteous and punish the, the un, un, unrighteous, but it doesn't do that way and I'm upset, right? 
And for many of us, we have times where we experience things in life, these great disappointments that cause us to deconstruct our faith. There are times you've had that sick loved one in the hospital, and you were told if you had enough uh, faith and pray, they'll be healed. You knew someone would often pray for someone sick, and you'd hear stories of someone healing, or sometimes they wouldn't get healed, but that was out there. Now it is in here, and it's something that's a part of you. It's not abstract. It's coming crashing down on your soul and calls things into question. Or maybe some of you, you moved to Chicago, and before you lived with people who all believe similar things to you about God. You shared the same God picture. That you've come to Chicago and there's different ideas of God and different ideas about the world. And they're not just some theories out there. You, you, you knew these theories were out there, but now you're building friendships with these people. You're loving these people. You care for them. And now it has a disorientation to it. What do we do with these experiences of pain and love that calls our God picture into question? We must work out Jesus' appearing from within. And this isn't just a purely intellectual process. It's more personal than that. That often what happens in deconstruction is there's this an event or someone or something that you can't fit that new experience within your existing story of how you made sense of the world. And sometimes we're just too tired to ask more questions about it, that, that we, we just want to change the subject or we keep ourselves busy or we turn on another show or we have another drink. And distraction often is a more common form of doubt than questioning is. But doubt is woven throughout the entire biblical narrative. And I'm an advocate for doubt because if we never doubted, I would have never became a Christian in the first place. And so in this moment, when we're not a fan of our world and we're disappointed, we can do a couple of things. One, we can be advocates, which is good. We, can, we see this a lot on Twitter right now. Let me make you aware of something wrong. Hey, let's do something about it. Or we can call out, hey, look at the problem. Look who is to blame. But both advocacy and call-out culture keep the problem at arm's length. Reconstruction is what God is calling us to. Reconstruction is doing something with our lives. Reconstruction is about investment. It's about sacrificial solidarity. So healthy deconstruction is like the demolition stage of the remodel. It's necessary to rebuild, but it is not the end game. And what James does is he reconstructs. When he meets Jesus, his faith is turned upside down, but he says, I'm going to be a pillar of the church, a servant to the Most High God and Jesus Christ. I'm going to use my energy to nurture others. I'm going to personally invest. If you are just rethinking God as an intellectual exercise, that's one thing. But this reconstruction has a new gravity that's beyond just the podcast and the books and the tweets and the debates. This is a moment of investment to align yourself to what you're tethered to, that the end goal of the Christian life is to arrive at the same location that James did, that I am a low-status servant so that all serves all in a reimagination of our life together. When we refuse reconstruction, it's the opposite of wisdom. When we refuse reconstruction, it's a kind of fundamentalism of its own self that says, you know what, I'm going to take the revelation in my interpretation, but I'm not going to begin to love and offer this new appearing of revelation to the world for the good of the world, to become a servant to others. One of the examples right now in our country is this awakening to the need to dismantle white supremacy even more than ever. So right, construction is, right, I inherited a Christianity that was whitewashed. Deconstruction is, 
let me revision and rearrange what I believe. Reconstruction then says, I realize Christianity predates white supremacy and it will outlast white supremacy. I love what Lisa Sharon Harper says. She says, when you walk away from Jesus, you are not woke. You are operating out of the white supremacy you say you abhor. You're walking away from the faith of enslaved people who found such profound liberation in Jesus that they broke laws to gather together and worship. When you walk away from Jesus and Christian faith to be woke, you are walking away from a faith that sprang from brown indigenous colonized people. You're walking away from faith born on the underside of empire in the context of oppressed people. And so it's a good thing to reject slaveholder religion, but she's encouraging us to reconstruct because Christianity is a liberating freedom that takes the appearing of Jesus and offers it to the good of the world. So why do I believe? Why do I press through my doubts? Why do I press through the deconstruction to try to be a reconstructionist that says I'm going to serve others and build others up? Well, I've got my doubts too, but I believe because I've been transformed. I believe because I've seen prayer work that can only be attributed to God. I believe because I've received the gospel of grace. But the core reason I believe is because Jesus believed. Jesus is one who believed. To be a Christian is to decide, out of all the voices I can listen to, I choose to trust Jesus over all the other voices. And we all have to choose who to trust because this is a very uncertain world in this life. And we, to be believers, means I believe Jesus is the most trustworthy person who has ever lived. That's because Jesus, he faced head on every question that paralyzes me. He looked at the fallen world and he didn't flinch. Jesus is not afraid of the complexities we face. And in the end, through all of that, he still believed in his father. He engaged cultures that worshiped other gods. Jesus broke down barriers that existed. He had a three-year window to redeem the entire world, and he slowed down to stop and listen and eat and dine with men and women, with Gentiles and Jews, with the oppressed and oppressors. He knew the rejection of the larger culture, and he was called a fool, and he was mocked for being uh, claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus also confronted the suffering of the world. We see Jesus weep over a mother who's lost her only son. We know Jesus knew exactly what it was like to lose one of his young friends, Lazarus. We see him touching lepers who are excluded from community and claiming them and deeming them to be clean, but even though everyone thought they were accursed by God. And at his most popular moment, the triumphal entry, he's in tears weeping over a city that is worshiping other gods and mistaking them for God. And ultimately, he knew his own suffering when he was executed at a young age by his oppressors. Jesus had so much room to doubt. He had so much room to stay in the phase of deconstruction, but he believed and he built the church. And when he rose again, a lot of preachers love the Great Commission passage, right? Matthew 18, lo, I'm with you always to go into the world, baptizing them and in the, in, 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 in teaching them all that I've commanded them, right? But the verse before that, we never quote, but it says, then the 11 disciples in Matthew 28 
Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And I've got to believe that James was among some that doubted. What I love about this is God is not threatened by your doubt. He's not waiting for you to get over your doubt. He's saying, I choose you, I trust you, and I'm sending you even in the midst of the doubt. He sends even those who worship, and he sends even those who doubted. So Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you can overcome that doubt, maybe I'll give you a beautiful story of purpose. No, his invitation is you right now, right as you are in the midst of your doubt, I choose you and I'm sending you. You see, if Jesus isn't paralyzed by where we are in our process, we shouldn't be either. So to all those kept awake by questions too afraid to ask out loud, for all those still limping to a blow that has come to their life that now just doesn't fit in their worldview, to all those who were once passionate at 18, but now you're hanging by a thread, this is an invitation from God who wants to appear to you, who wants to appear from above, who wants that appearance to be worked on from within so that you can show the appearance of Jesus as a servant to do good in this world. Let's pray. And uh, I want to pray with you, and I want to encourage you to insert your own words as we pray. And to be honest with God. God, um, I confess that I doubt you at times. I doubt that you're listening. And if I do believe you're listening, I doubt you care. And if I doubt you care, sometimes I doubt that you're active in this world. And when I, when I believe you're active in this world, I doubt that you're good and that you'll actually love me personally. Please just take a moment right now and just honestly tell God your doubts. God, we're also in the season of waiting I pray that in this time of waiting, you'll appear to me, that you'll make yourself present to me. But I feel silence at times and I feel far from God at times. And I pray right now that you would just name the silence you feel from God right now. Name it, name that silence that you feel. And God, I pray that you would send me in the midst of my doubt, in the midst of my deconstruction and reconstruction, God, would you send me to serve others? Would you lead me to a life of love, a life of resurrected love to build up the church, to build up your world? Would you do that in faith? Would you ask God to send you, not a cleaned up version of you, but the you that is you right now, would you ask him to send you? All God's people said, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.